One, two. Here's two. the bevy. Two. Yeah, One, two. To the John Lennon Hour with Jude Sutherland Kessler, author of the John Lennon series, Volume 1, Should Have Been There, Volume 2, Shivering Inside, and Volume 3, She Loves You. Purchase your copy of the John Lennon series at johnlennonseries.com. Welcome, Beatles fans. This is the John Lennon Hour. Well, welcome one and all to a very exciting evening of the John Lennon Hour because tonight it's a live show where you, you, you are the director because tonight you're going to get to speak live to one of America's foremost Beatles experts an award-winning New York Times author, Jonathan Gould. You know, hosting a radio show is almost always about other people. I agree to have people on the show who are promoting a new book or a new film or a new project, and I absolutely love doing that. It's a lot of fun helping people make their dreams come true and telling the story of their life's work. But once in a while, i got to admit it, I do something very selfish. And having Jonathan Gould on the program is one of those selfish acts, i got to confess. A couple of years ago, well, it's probably been more than a couple, I read Can't Buy Me Love, The Beatles, Britain, and America, Jonathan's book, and I was so impressed with not only his knowledge of the Beatles, but the quality of his writing and the research that he did. You know, I'm one of those OCD writers who underlines great words, does a little vocabulary page in the back of the book, and underlines powerful passages. And I've got to tell you that my copy of Can't Buy Me Love is underlined to the hilt. It's highlighted and yellowed with stars and all kinds of little things that say I enjoyed the book. And the passages concerning the Beatles' music are so powerful and so insightful. And I want to share one with you so that you'll know what I'm talking about. I'm reading from page 295 of Can't Buy Me Love, The Beatles, Britain, and America, a wonderful passage about Rubber Soul. He writes, The title, Rubber Soul, was suggested by Paul McCartney and meant as a self-deprecating pun on the relationship between white musicians and black music, 1965 being the year when the term soul music came into general usage as a description of the gospel-based rhythm and blues. But the title also carried an implication that it was not just the Beatles' lives, but their very souls that had been bent out of shape by the stresses and strains of success. Certainly, this was the impression created by Robert Freeman's woozily distorted cover photograph, in which the Beatles' pale, gray faces are shown looming out of deep green foliage behind them. 
George, Ringo, and Paul are all gazing off to the side like figures communing with destiny in a classic Roman tableau. Only John peers down his long nose into the lens, his expression exquisitely dandified, his mocking eyes ringed in red. Swirling across their foreheads, over their ears, and down their necks, the Beatles' hair in the photograph is not only full, but long. As long as the hair and storybook illustrations of the Middle Ages, they no longer look like page boys, but more like full-fledged knights. And in the 14 songs on the album, they showed every intention of leaving all vestiges of storybook romance behind. The music on Rubber Soul is well advertised by this cover. It is the Beatles as before, but twisted on their axis, looking in different directions, arrayed against a background of darker, more somber hues. Those are the words of Jonathan Gould in Can't Buy Me Love, and that's why I wrote to Random House requesting a chance to interview this outstanding researcher, musician, and author. And in just a few minutes, you'll get to talk to him, too, by calling in to 646-668-2641, 646-668-2641, to ask him your questions. You know, after I wrote to him, I heard from him in just a few days, and he said he was delighted to come on and to share his research about the Beatles and because we're both of the era of the Beatles, his remembrances of the Beatles, and we did that together about eight weeks ago. And that first show together was very special. If you missed it, we covered the Beatles' early years, their teenage influences, the Hamburg experience, the impact of Liverpool upon the boys, and the significance of that very first trip that they made to America in February of 1964, how it changed them and how they changed the states. And you can still hear this program if you missed it the first time by going into the archives. I urge you to listen to it. It was great info. And tonight you're going to get to meet and participate and chat with Jonathan. And what we're going to discuss is the Beatlemania years, those hectic, mad days between late 1963 and the end of 1965 in which the Beatles ruled our thoughts, our airwaves, and certainly the imagination of the world. And Mr. Gould is not called in yet, so hopefully he will be calling in in just a few minutes. But while we're waiting for him to join us, I want to tell you and share with you a very special and exciting joy in my life. And that is I am welcoming tonight to the show my new public relations agent, a very enthusiastic positive, vivacious, go-getter, Nicole Michael of 910 Public Relations, you know, the one after 909. Nicole is a powerhouse, and she's already working tirelessly to get the John Lennon series out there and to keep that Lennon flame burning. She's making great changes that have put a gigantic smile on my face. I wish you could see it. And she's not only representing me, but she's also representing Lena Stagg of Recipe Records as well and doing great things for Lena too. So please follow her on Facebook at 910 Public Relations. 
910publicrelations, and on Twitter at 910pubrel, P-U-B-R-E-L. And she'll keep you updated on this radio show and who's coming up every week and everything that's going on with the John Lennon series. And while we're still waiting for Jonathan Gould to phone in, I'll tell you about our guest next week. And everybody pray that he's going to call in because he's great. We truly want to hear from him. Let me give that number in case he's wildly searching for the number. It is 646-668-2641. 646-668-2641. Next week, another guru of the Beatles world, Bruce Spizer, is going to be here to talk about his new ebook, and he's going to be selling it at the Fest for Beatles fans in Chicago in August. Hope you guys are planning to go to that. If you've never been to a Fest for Beatles fans, you have totally totally missed out. I know that Dwayne and Andrea and Cameron Hicks are listening tonight, and they're going, I think, for the first time. And if you haven't been, you must, must go to a fest for Beatles fans because it is the ultimate Beatles experience and weekend. Bruce will be selling his new book there. It is The Beatles Story on Capitol Records, Part 1, Beatlemania, and The Singles. And this book, which has come out in a form, has now been revised and expanded for the digital edition. If those of you who've seen Bruce's transformations into a digital edition know that he adds so many more photographs. He makes it very user-friendly, and he expands it when he goes to ebook. So don't miss out on his new book, and he will be here to talk with us about that book next Thursday night on the 9. Now, if you've never heard Bruce speak, if you've never seen him be a presenter at the Fest for Beatles fans, and if you didn't hear him when he was on the show last time, oh my goodness, it is wild and woolly and fun, fun, fun till Daddy took the T-bird away. He's hilarious, and you're going to enjoy him. And he is probably, I would say, the number one Beatles expert on music, on the Beatles' music and their records and the different record releases in the world today. So don't miss him. One last bit of business. As we are waiting, we're tapping our toes, we're singing a little song, and we're hoping that Jonathan Gould is calling in 646 668-2641. And for those of you who are listening in and, and sweating this along with me, I'm sure things will work out for the best. They always do. But while we're waiting, don't forget to vote. For She Loves You in the Buzz Bookstore Contest. I thought that the last day to vote was the 30th of May and that we were on top of that deadline. But smart and savvy, Shelley Germeau of JohnLennonExaminer.com, and if you don't follow JohnLennonExaminer.com, you really, really should because she writes some great things. She wrote to me today and she pointed out that the voting continues until 30 June. Now, everybody's application had to be in, their books had to be in by the 30th of May. But the voting goes on for four more weeks. So we have four more weeks to vote, 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 vote. How do you do that? Well, you go to buzzbookstore.com backslash contest.html 
and all you have to do is click on the She Loves You video. People have been upset because they go there and they watch the video and then they can't find out how to vote. You don't have to do anything fancy. If you watch the video, you voted. So that's all you have to do. Now, why do I want to win the contest <laughs> besides the fact that I'm highly competitive? Well, obviously, if I win, it will help book sales, and I will be featured for 30 days as the featured author in the Buzz bookstore, and it goes out to thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people, and hopefully that would mean book sales, which would mean more money to be able to reprint Shivering Inside, there are lots of people out there who are waiting for a physical copy of Shivering Inside. We'd be able to do that and hopefully to reprint She Loves You as well so that we wouldn't run out because I think right now we have 39 first editions of She Loves You left and that's it. So very important to get those sales going not only in physical books that should have been there but in the Kindle editions as well. So Thank you for voting Buzz Bookstore Contest, and it's buzzbookstore.com backslash contest dot html. Well, we do not have our guest with us, and I'm very sad because he is spectacular, but if you have a question you want to ask me, you can ring me up, and we will chat. We'll talk Beatles, and until then... I'll give you the heads up on what's coming up September 18th and 19th in Arkansas. Beatles at the Ridge, Walnut Ridge, Arkansas, a fest to help support the great community of Walnut Ridge. All proceeds for the festival go to and stay in that community, and no one makes a profit from it. It is certainly just to reach out and to help the community of Walnut Ridge. Now, why Walnut Ridge? Why Walnut Ridge, Arkansas for a Beatles festival? Well, in 1964, at the end of that summer, when the Beatles came here for their North American tour, told to you brilliantly in Chuck Gunderson's book, Some Fun Tonight, the Beatles, as you know, did back-to-back-to-back-to-back concerts, and they only had one day of rest and relaxation. They flew in to Walnut Ridge, Arkansas, to travel with Reed Pigman up to the mountains of Arkansas, where they rode horses and rode go-karts and had a grand old time. And Walnut Ridge is where they landed, and it is the city's claim to fame. We have a two-day festival up there in September, and we are going to be featuring Seth Swirsky as our featured artist. He's going to be showing his film, Beatles Stories, and talking about how he traveled all across the world, interviewing celebrities who knew the Beatles firsthand and who have wonderful stories to tell, and how he made that trek into a movie. Our featured author will be Ivor Davis. Now, if you've never met Ivor Davis, oh my goodness, you've missed out on a great time. He is witty. He is smart. He knows all about the Beatles because he is the only reporter who traveled with the Beatles on every single day of their world tour in the summer of 1964. He didn't miss one day. He was with them from day one to the very end. He was a reporter from London who was chosen as the one 
reporter from London to accompany them in their entourage and be part of the inner circle. And Brian Epstein trusted him to tell the story of the Beatles, and that he did. So on Friday night, September 18th, he will be speaking about those memorable, wonderful, mad, mad days with the Beatles leading up to their flight into Walnut Ridge. I'll be speaking that evening as well, and we will also have on hand for the festival Anthony Robustelli, who is writing a comprehensive study of the Beatles' music called I Want to Tell You. He's doing, I believe, a three-part series, and he has a show on beatles Arama Radio every Sunday evening, Beatles Meltdown. Beatles, he takes every part of the Beatles' music and he breaks it down for you so that you can really appreciate it and understand it. Also, Dr. Kit O'Toole, whose brand new book, Songs We Were Singing, will be out by then. She will be on the show. And um, also Dr. Ken Womack, who has been at Penn State and wrote Long and Winding Roads and the Beatles Encyclopedia, will be on and Rand Kessler my husband, will be another of our featured artists. Well, guess what, guys? Good news for all of you. Our boards are lighting up, and I do see Jonathan Gould on the line. Woohoo! So we will bring him on right now. I know you guys are thrilled and sick of listening to me. Hey, Jonathan, how are you? Hi, Jude. I, I need to apologize. I... um. I, I had two numbers for you, and um, uh, one was in one email, and the other was in another email. And I dial was have been dialing the wrong number this whole time, but oh. I finally found the right number. Um, I am so sorry. To That's you and my apologies to your listeners. Well, no, not at all. We did all of our business so that now we have the rest of the show to talk to you, and we got all of our business out of the way, so that's perfect timing. I read them a selection from the book. We read your selection on Rubber Soul, and I talked to them about how really your original intent was to write a book about the Beatles' music, and then as you got into it, you included other things, but I love what you say about the music. When you talk about She Loves You, you call it a record that will make cups dance in their saucers and when you write about all i've got to do you call it a beat ballad in the wistful uptown style of sam cook and benny king i mean that's great writing and great observations but one song that you really have very little praise for is paul's cover of till there was you and in fact you say it comes close to an outright gas i love it tell us about that well, uh, uh, first of all, um, you know when you write a book about uh, when, you, when you write a book about uh, a musical phenomenon and uh, uh, composers as talented as the Beatles, um, who produced this incredible body of work, um, one of the things that you you know that I felt I had to resolve myself to was the idea that some of it's better than others. Um, the stuff that isn't great makes the stuff that is great that much better. And um, there are actually people, I mean, I've met a lot of people who um, their only objection to my book or their main objection to my book was that that I chose to, um, you know, to engage in in forms of music criticism when I was writing it. Um, But I am a professional musician. Uh, That's my background. And uh, musicians are constantly making assessments of the music that they're listening to and of of people, of, of other musicians whose work they love in many cases. So... 
Um, yeah, there, uh, there are cases, there, there are instances, instances in the book in which I have less than overwhelmingly positive things to yeah. say about some of the things the Beatles are doing. And Till There Was One is, is one of them. And, and in some ways, it's very simple. Um, I would say two things about it. First of all, Paul doesn't sing it very well. Um, right. He sings it in, in a way that strikes me as very mannered, very self-conscious. Um, and also, he doesn't really have a feel for that kind of that kind of a song. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things I say about that song is that, and I think one of the reasons it was put on that record, and it was one of the reasons that it was featured in the Beatles' Ed Sullivan show, you know, in, in their 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 debut on the Ed Sullivan show, is that song is an example of what used to be called a, a um, what used to be thought of as a well-written song, meaning <laughs> a song that that had the kind of the, the kind of polish. And um, quasi sort of poetic flavor of a lot of Tin Pan Alley songwriting, of a lot of Broadway songwriting, and of course it is a Broadway song. Um, sure. And in man- in many ways, what the Beatles and with, with a, a great deal of help from Bob Dylan did was to create, or not to create. That's that's too strong. But was was to um, was to sort of catalyze a whole other style of popular songwriting. Um, that had roots mm-hmm. in the blues, that had roots in in um, uh, you know uh, in, in rhythm and blues particularly, but um, and also in folk music, but was was not that type of song. So, you know, the simplest thing I would say again is that I don't think Paul sings it very well. In fact, I say a rather unkind thing to him, which is that it's at parts in parts of the song, he sounds like he's um, he's he's engaged in an act of memorization by somebody who doesn't otherwise speak English. And that's maybe <laughs> that's maybe a joke at, at his expense, right? Um, but uh, <laughs> uh, but 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 anyway, um, that's not what he's good at. Now, what's really interesting to me, though, is um, a few months later, um, uh, he he, uh, he he turns right around and 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 starts writing ballads somewhat um um in that style but um yeah. in his own voice and and does so brilliantly and so uh, you know i guess that song is 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 again one of the things the beatles did was in in their in their formative years was to experiment with everything they tried singing everything they tried singing um every type of song some things worked some things didn't work for them um, that was also true of, of R&B songs. There were certain types of R&B songs that they tried that they realized they really couldn't bring off, and so they avoided right. that type of thing. Um, yeah. At any rate, that's a, that's a, that's a rather long-winded response to a, a, a kind of no. And I, I really and it amazes me that people object to you ha- being a critic because what value is there in someone who's a sycophant and always just says, oh, this was great, this was great? You have no credibility sure. if you don't realize there's good and bad. Yeah, I think I, th- I, do, I do think that's true. But, you know, everybody, I mean, one of the great things about, about uh, being a fan of popular music is, you know, people like what they like and people are attached to what they're they're attached to. And in the case of that song, listen, we all know perfectly well that there were um, – thousands, possibly hundreds of thousands of teenage girls for whom the sight of Paul in that kind of doe-eyed, you know, sort of look that he could affect, 
singing that song, sort of looking up at the looking up at the sky, you know, was 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 very affecting. So I don't mean to take yeah, anything away from that. Yeah. <laughs> he's singing to me. He's singing to me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, I didn't tell you I was going to ask you this, and if you don't want to answer it, say, "Ah, oh, no, I'm not prepared for that eventuality." But how do you feel about Mr. Moonlight? Because I love it, but I know a lot of people hate it. Oh my it. God. <laughs> <laughs> You hate it, well, don't you? I think it's a- I, I do hate it. I think it's, but but I hate it. I mean, Mr. Moonlight is so bad that it's good in the sense that, um, first of all, it's it's a perfectly dreadful song. So yeah. what John Lennon does with it um, is really kind of kind of kind of amazing because he just sort of throws himself into it. Um, yeah. W- it, would I choose to listen to it? Um, I don't think so. You know what I'm trying to I'm trying to remember now. Um, I recently saw um, uh, Will Lee's band, the 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 um, the Fab Foe, which is yes. this extraordinary. Um, you know, Beatles. I won't even say they're a tribute band. I won't even say they're a cover band. They're a, they're a group of of you know. For those of you who don't ha, don't know them, haven't seen them, by by all means, go see them if you ever get a chance. They're absolutely top notch New York, mainly session musicians. Who play right. this music um, with an incredible amount of, of devotion and, and incredible amount of skill, and you know they do just about everything. And I'm trying to remember when I saw them if they did Mr. Moonlight. <laughs> I think they did actually, um, yeah. and yeah. they did justice to its awfulness, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> <laughs> well, that opening Mr. Moonlight that John does. Oh my God. I, Yes. It, I know. To me, that's one of the great sounds of his career. That opening, Mister, yeah, is just I, amazing. I, 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 I can't dispute that. It's it's what the song goes on to do, really. That's, yes, that's kind of the problem. <laughs> if he could only have ended it there. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> well, we do have a caller who has been waiting for a few minutes to talk to you. So, if you don't mind, we'll bring them on the line. I'd be delighted. Hey, caller from the 870 area code. How are you? Uh, good. This is Cameron. Cameron is this you? Hi, hey. Cameron. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Hi, I'm doing how wonderful. Jonathan Cameron is uh, from the Memphis area, and we met at Beatles at the Ridge last year, and he is a musician as well. And um, a huge Beatles fan. And Cameron, you are, are you 13? Yes, ma'am. And I know that you are, you read everything about the Beatles. So I, I bet you have a good question to ask Mr. Gould. I do. Okay, fire away. Okay, Mr. Gould, in your book, you said something about buying Epstein, making the decision to, um, Sort of dress them opposite of how they really were. Like in a hard day's night, goofing around in the train car while wearing their coats and ties. Then you let the difference play out in public. Can you tell me more about what you meant by that and how Brian's plan helped them to succeed? Um, and, uh, Cameron, let me just get this straight. You're asking about that, that he that he dressed them differently than than than. Uh, is that what you're asking about particularly? Yes, sir. Like opposite yeah, well, of how their behavior was, you know, they were dressed sure. formally and then they goofed around. Of course, yeah, no, of of course. Um, well, here's the thing. Um, you know, the Beatles uh, styled themselves as 1950s rockers, and 
in their formative years in, in, in Liverpool and Hamburg, they felt that they were paying homage to a, a style of, 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 uh, of dress and music and, I would say, attitude altogether that uh, they associated with the, 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 the sort of glory years of, of, of rock and roll in the 1950s. And um, that was, you know, that was their, that was their, their personal, that was their religion, so to speak. That was, they were true believers at that. Um, but of course, the other thing that happened was, even though they started playing music in that period and remained devoted to it, uh, they stayed abreast of what was happening in popular music, which was changing at an enormous rate uh, during the early 1960s, largely because of the influence of uh, a new type of, uh, a new sort of what, what some of us call uptown style of black rhythm and blues. That's to mm -hmm. say groups like, or groups like, like, uh, like the Motown groups or Sam Cooke or Arthur Alexander, rhythm and blues that, that had developed, a, or, or the drifters that had developed a kind of polish to it, right? And um, uh, also all of the girl groups, which, which featured this, this extraordinary type of call-and-response singing, which is also a, a, a trademark of rhythm and blues. Um, right. So um, there they were, now, now playing that, that music in these, these, these leather get-ups that they had, um, their, their Hamburg leathers, as, as they like to think of them. And by 1961 or 62, um, though they weren't in a position to, to know it because they were kind of in a bit of a bubble. They were living in, 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 in Liverpool, which was a, a provincial city and had a provincialism about it. In certain aspects were, of it weren't tied to um, what was happening in places like London and New York and Los Angeles and so on and so forth. And then they were living this life in Hamburg, which was also even more of a bubble in some ways. But... Mm -hmm. um, Epstein was another story. Uh, Epstein was, um, uh, first of all, uh, a businessman who, um, he, he was a failed actor. He had spent a lot of time in London, even though he grew up in Liverpool. Um, he was also gay. And uh, the important thing about that was he paid a lot of attention to the way, uh, to, to the way men looked and, and uh, paid a lot of attention to the way that young men looked, um, particularly in London when, when he was down there. Um, and what he was aware of was this whole other stylistic sort of um, trend that was taking place, um, which uh, in about 1963 and 64 sort of became known as the mod style. But um, mm -hmm. before that was, um, was, was, was drawing on a lot of different influences. And what it was was the style of continental clothes. It was um, the idea of wearing a, a very sharp-looking suit that was tailored to a young person's body. That's to say, it wasn't wasn't one of those baggy three-piece suits that you see uh, Don Draper wearing in the early episodes of, of Mad Men. Um, it was uh, it was a continental fashion in that way, and and it came from Italy and also a bit from France. But the interesting thing about it was some of the first people who picked up on it were were black American jazz and rhythm and blues musicians. Um, and English teenagers got a glimpse of this on the covers of jazz and R&B albums um, that were released in England, mainly by, uh, largely by Atlantic Records, also by Columbia Records, too. Um, if you mm -hmm. look at Miles Davis in about 1959 or 1960, um, you'll see, you'll see what, what, what they saw, and you'll see uh, uh, um, uh, uh, an image of this new style. And Epstein had this kind of amazing brainstorm, which was to take them out of these, um, 
these kind of anachronistic, kind of old-fashioned, kind of out-of-date um, rocker outfits that they were wearing and put them in these suits. Um, mm -hmm. Now, John Lennon, as we all know, um, you know, later on chose to complain about this bitterly, as if this somehow represented the Beatles selling out in some sort of way. I, I've yeah. never thought of them thought of it as a case of them selling out. I've I've thought of it as a case of them sort of moving into the 1960s in a, in, in a manner of speaking. And what Epstein understood was that if you dress them up in that way, if you made them look ostensibly presentable, um, if you made them look the way people uh, remember a few minutes ago, I was talking about the so-called well-written song. Okay, right. if you made them look like like a well-dressed young man, right? But at the same time. Um, uh, between their hair and their attitude and the way that they performed on stage and their wit, um, all of that worked very much against that, that sort of slight aura of respectability that those mm -hmm. suits seem to convey. And I'd like to suggest to, as a kind of general principle that the most interesting things that happen in popular culture um, the things that, that, for one reason or another, have the strongest influence have some kind of a contradiction built into the middle of them. Um, hmm. You can see it with Sinatra. I, I'm, I'm thinking now in music, but you, it doesn't just apply to music. But in music, you can see it in Sinatra. You can see it in Elvis. There's some fundamental contradiction there. You can see it in Sam Cooke. Um, mm -hmm. but Sam Cooke was the first glimpse that anybody had of, of, uh, in America of what an Ivy League black man might look like. Right. Yeah, um, that, yeah. That was a that was a contradiction in terms until they 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 saw it in Sam Cooke. That is to say, um, a, a very good looking sort of young, um, you know, sort of sort of um, thin uh, 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 African American man wearing cardigan sweaters and and um, loafers. Right? Yeah. This was this was not anybody's idea of the way that was supposed to look. So. What Epstein did was he found, I guess one way to put it is he found the essential contradiction that could exist in, in the Beatles and coaxed them into it. And it did take coaxing. Um, Paul, I think, because he liked the idea of suits anyway, wasn't hard, to, wasn't hard to get on board. I think George was probably the hardest to get on board. I think John was right. actually kind of in between because one of the things they all did admit after a while was that they really liked the way they looked in those suits. You know? Sure. After they, yeah. after they learned how to wear them in that sense. So I think that's the um, – and, and by the way, that sense of a contradiction um, it, it goes all the way through uh, the Beatle phenomenon. Um, if, if, if the thing with the if, – if, the, if the notion of their dress seems a little too subtle perhaps, maybe, maybe a better way to think about it is the combination of this fierce rhythm that, that many of their early songs had – Combined with this, 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 um, with with these lilting melodies, um, uh -huh. there again, that's not something that that um, that's not one was one was used to hearing one or the other. Um, the Beatles managed to put the two things together in very strong terms. Um, they didn't play, they didn't rock any harder than Chuck Berry, but what they did was in a song like, well, name any of their songs, any of their any of their big songs, and she loves you. I mean, their big hits or please, please me. Um, mm -hmm. What they did was they took that, that driving rhythm of, of, of Barry and, and, and Little Richard and people like that, and they grafted these, these, these very affecting melodies on top of them. And there again, that's a kind of contradiction. That's not what people expect to hear. They expect to hear this growling vocal to, to that kind of a growling rhythm, or they expect right. to hear um, 
you know, a sort of a, a much lighter rhythmic accompaniment to those kind of lilting rhythms. So, I, mm-hmm. Cameron, I hope that I, I hope that gives sort of gives you a sense of of, of what you were asking about in in that way. Does is that does that answer it in a sense? Yes, sir, it did. Thank you. Yeah. And Cameron, well, I, I want to thank so you so while you're online too, because. Um, Jonathan, my husband, wrote a song about Liverpool called Home to Liddy, and we put it on YouTube and everything, and Cameron covered it. So that's our first cover artist ever, and he has a video on YouTube of him playing it. So my thanks to you, Cameron. That was very sweet of you. You're a great guy. Thank you. Well, we'll see you soon in Chicago at the Fest. See you, too. Okay, thanks for calling. All righty. All right. Well, I have one. We did have one other caller on the line, but they must have had to go. So I wanted to ask you before we get one more call in, your take on Ringo is, I just agree with it 150%, because you say that he was just essential to the Beatles, that without him they couldn't have been who they were. And you say the Beatles added to their ranks an authentic souvenir of Liverpool and that they became unimaginable without him. Talk to us about how important Ringo was to that group. Well, um, again, you know, I, I guess one way to approach it is, is like this. Um, John, Paul, George, and Ringo, uh, that, 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 that litany right there um, right. strikes most of us as, as, well, first of all, it's kind of poetic, but more importantly, um, it, it, it just sounds like what is. Um, uh, John, Paul, George, and Pete sounds like Monty Python. Okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it sounds like yeah. it sounds like um, it's like it sounds like a joke. All right, that's how that's how indispensable the whole notion of Ringo in, in, uh, became to the Beatles. Um, right, and, it, it, it's, and, and here again, it's on it's on a number of different levels. Um, I actually I'm a drummer, so uh, uh, people would always ask me, um, particularly when the book first came out. Um, and even before the book first came out, oh, what did I think about Ringo? What did I think about Ringo? And, I, and of course, I have very, I have extremely glowing things to say about him as a drummer. Most of the um, most of the of, of the drummers, uh, professional drummers that I've known all through my life, be, be they jazz drummers or rock and roll drummers or rhythm and blues drummers, um, had a, uh, have a very high opinion of his playing. Um, because he understands in a most basic way what it is the drums are about, and he fulfills that function in 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 uh, uh, in every respect. Um, mm-hmm. When people would ask me, when people would talk about his his you know uh, his perceived technical shortcomings and so on and so forth, I would always ask them, well, what exactly would you, what more would you want to hear? Um, where, where would you want something to be happening where you know to your mind it isn't happening? Um, right. So. Certainly, the you know the the impetus for his joining the group, the main impetus was musical. He was a much better drummer than Pete Best um, in in ways that were uh, again had to do with modernity, had to do with the way the difference between the way people play the drums in 1957 in rock and roll and the way people played the drums in 1963 or 1962 when when Ringo joined in R and B and rock and roll. Um, he had mastered that in a way that Pete Best didn't. Pete Best was a bit of a um, was a bit of a dinosaur, I guess is the best way to describe it, as a player. Um, but the other aspect of it had to do with Ringo's personality and his looks and his whole sensibility. And um, 
the interesting thing, the amazing thing, of course, is that he comes into the band. Just, they've already gotten their recording contract. They're, they're ready to go. And at the last minute, they make this extraordinary change in the whole complexion of, of who they are. Um, by bringing him in and taking Pete out. And again, it's, it's driven yep. by musical considerations, but, but then there are these other considerations. And, you know, one of the things that, that it's, it's easy to forget about the Beatles now in, in light of their, their, you know, their, their musical, their, their whole extraordinary musical sort of dominance and, 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 and history, is that when they first came on the scene in Britain and, and in America, too, they were very, very funny. Um, people thought of them as comedians. Um, yeah. Their repartee, um, their whole style with the press and and and, and on stage as well. Um, people recognized that John Lennon was a wit, but but more important, John Lennon was was one component in this 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 four part sort of sort of um, well repartee that they had. And Ringo um, was an essential element of that. In fact, Ringo, um, when I say that he was a souvenir of Liverpool. You know, all all three of the other most of you you know, most of you know uh, John Paul and George. They were all suburban grammar school boys. They grew up in the suburbs right. of Liverpool, not not in, down by the docks or anything anything near there. Um, and they were quite well educated. Um, they were educated uh, in the way that that people were educated of their generation to go on to college, which is what was expected right. of them. And of course, they yeah. turned away from that path. But still. They were witty. They were articulate. They were they were people who, um, uh, you know, basically uh, uh, had, were thoughtful and and intelligent and knew it. Um, sure. Ringo, on the other hand, um, genuinely grew up in the slums of Liverpool. He grew up in the Dingle, which was um, the, the joke always there was that they played tag with hatchets. It was a tough yeah. place. Yeah. And yeah. you know, and. Yeah. Um, he, uh, because of a series of illnesses and so on and so forth, really got very little schooling. Um, he's not illiterate by any means, but he's certainly somebody who is not at ease with reading and writing and things like that. Um, but what Liverpool, what, what, what Ringo had, what he developed, was the, the sort of classic Scouser attitude and the classic mm -hmm. Scouser sort of sensibility. And... Mm -hmm. um, this became this sort of grounded the other three of them when they started to go out into the world, and by the world I mean now London and New York and places like that. Um, sure. John Lennon used to say, "He said all I have to do is look over at Ringo and I, look over at Ringo, and I know we're not Supermen." Okay, and that wasn't a put down <laughs> of Ringo, right? No, that was a reminder of the fact that um, this is the place that they came from. This is the, yeah. this is the, the this is the, the spirit and the sensibility um, that that shaped them more than just about anything else. And yeah. of course, the the really interesting thing is that when the time when 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 they when they started to make films, when they made uh, a Hard Day's Night, um, Ringo was the person that that Richard Lester immediately zeroed in on um, sure. as the best act the best actor of 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 the four of them. That is to say, the least self conscious on camera. Um, Richard Lester zeroed in on the fact that Ringo had some of the some of the characteristics of of some of the great. I'm not saying he was this, but he had some of the characteristics of some of the great silent comedians. He was the yeah. little guy. He was the little the little Chaplin-esque guy. Um, sure. The the you know the, the underdog, the obvious underdog in that way. And he also mm -hmm. had a face which um, 
with those big eyes and that that the you know all of uh, Ringo did the best double take of anybody in the band. <laughs> yeah. Ringo did yeah. the best sort of sort of slow take, and those are all very Liverpoolian sorts of sorts of of of, of you know forms of social interaction. And um, and he was also capable of, of of a certain type of Liverpool retort that we can't talk about on the radio, but um, it was just this really blunt sort of comeback that um, if if you go to Liverpool you hear it all the time in all sorts of sure. different variations. Um, so uh, that that's what I mean. He, at the very moment when they were actually um, taking the steps that were gonna, that were gonna, causing them to leave Liverpool really for good. I mean, they would go back to visit there, but but their lives were moving to London, and their lives were moving from London on to the rest of the world. At the last minute, they added this 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 real reminder, this real souvenir of the world that they grew up in. And yeah. again, I don't, I, I find it um, almost impossible to imagine that group. Um, in any of the ways that we know them, with Ringo not there, with with some other drummer, um, yeah. with some other personality there, he's as indispensable as 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 any of them in that way, and that's yeah. that's that's kind of amazing. He it really is. He I think of that motto, Ringo, don't leave home without him. <laughs> you know, you, yes. He, yes. he just you take Liverpool with you when you take him along. Well, we have a caller who's holding to talk to you, so let's bring him on. Terrific. Hello, caller from the eight one two area code. Welcome to the John Lennon Hour. Hello, Jude. This is Lena. Hey, Lena Stag, Recipe Records. Welcome to the show, my friend. Thank you for calling in. Well, thank you very much for um, having the show. It's a great pleasure to be able to ask a question for of Mr. Gould. So thank you very much, Mr. Gould, for um, being able to sort out my question. It's a pleasure. <laughs> ahead of time. Um, well, fire away, girl. Okay. Well, one thing that I was curious about is when John Lennon was basically attacked for saying that um, the Beatles were now, you know, bigger than Jesus. There was also, about the same time, an interview that George did with Maureen Cleave, I believe. Right. And and he was very critical of religion, the hypocrisy of religion. And, um, but it doesn't seem like anyone ever heard about that. And we just heard about John Lennon. And sure. is um, why, why do you think, do you think that John was a target by the media? Or, um, well, or they just yeah, didn't I, I, know? Um, again, John was, uh, if, John was the most articulate. And if you're the most articulate, you put things in ways that people can react to more strongly than they might otherwise. Um, you know, uh, John's comments were in a series, were given in a, uh, as part of a series of, of interviews that Maureen Cleave did um, in, 1960, in, the, in the spring of 1966 that were really um, 
early spring, I think it was, of 66, that were really the first time that anybody had sat down with the Beatles individually. You know, people of the press had always encountered them as a group, and that repartee that I was talking about before, that they had this routine that they did with the press, and um, nobody had ever sat down with them um, individually without the other three there in, 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 and, and, and got them to talk in, in, any, in any concerted way. And, and they were very comfortable with Maureen um, Cleve. She was, um, she was a young, attractive, flirtatious, uh, and very good journalist, kind of the Maureen Dowd of her day in some ways, I mm-hmm. guess is one way to look at her, if you, for those of you who know Maureen Dowd. And, um, and actually, with the exception of Ringo, as one might expect, um, George and, and John and Paul, in their individual interviews, were sort of vying with one another to say something outspoken. Um, Paul made some very, very strong comments about race relations in the United States in, in his interview. Um, mm-hmm. George talked to George, who at that point was just starting to get interested in Indian, um, you know, in, in Indian religion, first Indian music and, and slash religion and, and, and uh, philosophy, um, made some statements about the hypocrisy of, of, of organized religion. And, but it was John who came out with the, with, with, with the line that, that related the Beatles to the whole thing, the idea that they were bigger than Jesus at this point, right? Now, everybody hearing that understands it was a figure of speech, right? Yeah, and right. And it wasn't, it, wasn't, it wasn't a boast. It was a figure of speech. Um, right. It was an exaggeration in, in the way that people often engage in that sort of thing. And, of course, when, that article appe- when those articles appeared in the Evening Standard, which, is, which was Maureen, Dow, uh, Maureen Cleave's paper, um, there was no reaction at all in Britain. Nobody, nobody got angry about it. Nobody said, oh, how dare he say something like that. And amazingly yeah. enough, um, uh, Maureen Cleave went on, and she, she sort of combined all of those interviews in an article that ran in the New York Times magazine um, at the beginning of the summer in 1966. And that didn't get any reaction at all either. That is to say, the readers of the New York Times read all of this stuff, including the we're bigger than Jesus comment, and, mm-hmm. you know, they just took it in stride. Weirdly enough, it wasn't until um, the remarks were, were not just reproduced, but also um, uh, referenced on the cover of Hit Parader magazine, which was a, a um, probably the best music magazine of, of its time in the mid-60s, but was a, a you know, a real teen magazine, um, uh, you know. Yeah. Um, that's when, excuse the expression, all hell broke loose, right? And <laughs> so I think that to some extent John was being signaled out. I think that he, uh, he was perceived by that time um, by people who, were, uh, who, were, who, who knew something about the group as the, um, probably the most provocative of any of them. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the initial reaction came mainly from, from DJs in the South um, mm-hmm. uh, who, again, you know, I'm not going to say they weren't genuinely outraged by it. Um, I will say that uh, you know they certainly found ways to 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 fan a lot of to generate a lot of publicity for themselves and their stations by being sure. outraged about it. But you know mm-hmm. the other thing the other thing that 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 I was always taken with uh, in terms of the, the 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 response the sort of firestorm of response and there were many many people who um, came to John Lennon's defense, including. Um, right the Jesuit magazine America, which was, you know, a Catholic magazine, mm-hmm. um, which said, well, you know, he's making, uh, this is true, you know, I mean, it's, it's true that, that, that um, uh, rock and roll and groups like the Beatles seem to exert more influence over young people nowadays than the church does, and, and what are we going to do about that sort right. of thing? Um, 
but it's it's uh, again it's 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 a very complicated thing because um, it was overstatement and um, as we, listen we we live in a world now where we understand all too well um, how seriously people can take what they regard as blasphemy so right. um, that's the way this was taken you know um, and it was very offhanded and of course for for John it was it was it was you know I think for all of them they had no idea that people took them this seriously or that people were prepared to take them this seriously after all they were singers they were entertainers you know they were not uh, they were not world leaders right right yeah. <laughs> and well, I don't think you it's over yet much. you know Vivek uh, Tawari is getting ready to do a film, a, a motion picture of his The Fifth Beetle, and we keep talking back and forth about it because in the book, The Fifth Beetle, John is portrayed as not really being that sorry for his comment, and Brian is coercing him to apologize. When And I keep saying, Vivek, he was like destroyed by this, and he really was extremely sorry. So, the controversy is still ongoing. It's still happening today. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. I, I. I think that's true. I think that's true. Again, Lenin's instinct would have been to, uh, to you know, to want to tough it out. Um, but I think he actually really was unnerved by it. And of course, you know, there were many things that happened on that 1966 tour um, when when the group came to Memphis. Um, you know, there were bomb threats. There were people picketing this sort of thing. Um, I, I say I think it happened in Memphis because that was the um, I think there was maybe one Florida date also. But Memphis was the one date that was you know that was truly in, in what used to be called the Bible Belt as far as that goes. Right. So there was a lot of there was a lot of right. of, 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 of of energy put into that. Um, but um, yeah, I think they and listen, their part of their reaction to that whole tour and that whole. Uh, including that controversy, was really to withdraw from public life um, for a couple of years. Uh, and, yeah. um, you know, and, and in, in John's case, uh, the withdrawal went on much further than that. And, of course, when he decided to, to emerge in, into public, um, there were very tragic consequences. And, and there again, yeah. you know, I think that this was a man who had no idea that um, really that, 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 that he meant uh, that he could have this kind of significance, uh, good or bad, um, to people, um, you know, to people really? in the world. Is their their yeah. message were, look, we're we're, we're musicians. That you know, yeah. we're we're good at what we do, but that's what we are, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Lena, right. that's such a good question. Thank, Thank you. you so very much. Thank and, you. Uh, we are looking. I told everybody at the top of the hour about 910 Public Relations, and we're just excited that Recipe Records and the John Lennon series. We're getting ready to share in some good things. So, yeah, yeah, very excited, Perfect. very yeah. excited. Thank you for calling in. Thank you. All right. Okay. Bye. See you soon. Bye-bye. Bye bye. We have Thank only you. five minutes left, but we have one more caller. You think you can squeeze them in? Okay. Here I we go. Call, I, I, I will do what hey. I'm terrible at, which is being brief. <laughs> <laughs> okay, caller from the 781 area code. Welcome to the John Lennon Hour. Hi, Jude. How are you? Hey, how are you, Ed? Fire yes, away. Wow, you remember my name. Excellent. Thanks very much. I appreciate that. Well, of course, of course. And this is Jonathan Gould, so we have about five minutes if you want to ask him a quick, quick question. Okay, I think this will be a quick one, hopefully. I had other questions, but I'll, I'll, I'll go to this one. Uh, even though... The Beatles are responsible for the British invasion. What would you say is their staying power over 50 years? Um, 
they were they were brilliant songwriters. They made um, they made extraordinary records. Um, all of the, the the most interesting thing for me uh, is I, I spent uh, what what Jude sort of suggested at the beginning of this. I started out wanting to write a book almost exclusively about their music. I became very interested in the whole social phenomenon and the whole social background uh, behind them and their music, so I wound up writing a great deal about that. But as time goes on, the sociology falls away. Um, as time goes on, um, there are people who, if they choose to, can go back and understand what the significance of the band was in the 60s, um, what, or in, for that matter, in the 20th century, because uh, they, they, were, uh, they, they were that kind of a cultural force. But um, in the end, what's left are those several hundred remarkable songs um, which uh, we have the benefit of in a way that we didn't with, say, Beethoven. Um, right. We don't have any records of Beethoven playing his own work. Um, it must have been extraordinary to hear it, especially at the time, right? But right. in the case of the Beatles, we not only have those songs, but we have these, these definitive performances of those songs. Um, and through the, one of the wonderful things about, about EMI at that time that we should all be grateful for is that EMI was as, as, as good a recording studio as existed on the face of the earth at that time. And quite frankly, the quality of recording in, in, in the 1960s um, has not been surpassed for, for clarity and, and, and so on and so forth. Um, you can do more things in a recording studio now, but in terms of the fidelity of those, of, of those master tapes, um, um, they're as good as it gets. So we're we have the ability to go right back to the to to to, to the original in that sense, um, and hear what people heard exactly what people heard then, and um, that's that's the in the end that's what the staying power is all about. It's it's all about it's all about talent. It's all about group genius, and it's all about um, this extraordinary power that art can wield in the world. And I could go on about that, but I think it's in some ways it's fairly simple, except for what it took to to, to create that kind of power and beauty and 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 energy and and to get it in the grooves of records, you know. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it, and it is. I mean, it transcends time. Fifty years later, we're still they're still timely. They're still cutting edge. They're still current. Thank you so so much for calling in. I, that was a great question, and uh, yes. we'll. Pick up with that theme again next time because that is great. And um, Jonathan, we have one more episode to do, the psychedelic Beatles leading up to those very last days in which they called it an end. So can we get you back on the show again in August? You can not, not only get me back on the show, but I, I now have the correct phone number etched <laughs> on my computer. So my fault, I'm sure. I will not come sauntering in 15 minutes into the program saying, here I am. I'll be there. Well, right that actually, the it, it worked out just great because all of the things that we had to do at the end, we did at the beginning, and we've gone all the way down to one minute, and you have been great. Thank you very much. I could listen for hours, for hours. Well, it's, so, it's, it's, it's thank a pleasure you. talking with you. I, I must say that. I'm looking forward to, 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 to doing it some more, and we'll talk about – well, well, we'll talk about, in some ways, what I think is probably the height of it all next time. That sounds wonderful. And, Ed, thank you for calling in. And to all of you listening, all the best to you and yours. ta and shine on. Have a great night, Jude.